Welcome to the Active Shooter Incident Management Podcast. My name is Bill Godfrey, your podcast host. Joining me today is Jill McElwee from uh, Fire EMS side. Uh, Jill, welcome back in the studio. Thanks. And uh, along with uh, Jill, we got Ron Ottobacher, uh back in the house. Hanging out. Hanging out. Back from the on the on the law enforcement side. Uh, Jill and Ron, uh, two of our in, instructors uh, here within C3 Pathway. So thank you all for coming back in. Oh, we love thank it. Fun. Today's topic is going to be the trappings of triage. And uh, um, this ought to be some interesting discussions to see where all we go with this. So uh, let me set the stage just a little bit and then we'll jump right in. Um, there's a number of triage systems in use in the United States. Uh, in fact, I think it's, it's well over a dozen uh, and numbers closer to 20. The most common one in use is start triage, or at least that's what people tell us they use. Sure. We but, hear that most often. Yeah. And then when you ask them to run through the algorithm, they're like, hey, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we're not really using it. Well, that's a whole other thing. Okay. So uh, start triage being the most common, there are a number of them. But one of the things that I want to make sure that we cover is um, what do you do after that? What do you what do you do after that? And Ron, I know it's been a it's been a minute since your paramedic days. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. But you still remember this stuff. Um, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about you know some of our law enforcement stuff. So let's, in fact, let's just start there. When we're doing training with law enforcement officers that have no real specific medical training or background, uh, tell us a little bit about you know what what you think and what we teach them on uh, basic triaging the thing we do is we try to assess the situation while we're also assessing the patients we call it a tactical triage we'll have them go into a room maybe a casualty collection point maybe just a room they entered that's got a bunch of people and we'll tell them look if you can hear my voice move up against this wall anyone that moves up against the wall we consider those green anyone else that hasn't moved we consider them red again most law enforcement people don't have the medical knowledge to be able to assess, you know, whether it's a ye red, yellow, green, or even black. And so we try and keep it simple. And then when the RTFs come in, they will reassess these people and re-triage them. And they may identify certain reds as blacks. They may identify other ones as yellows, or, you know, they may take a green patient that was able to move up against the wall, but realize their injuries are more significant than the fact that they could respond to our you know directions so that's what we do we just try to at least get an idea of what it is and then when we put that information out to, to to tactical triage and transport at least we can give them a rough idea of what we're dealing with downrange sure so mm -hmm. the uh, the basic idea is uh you come in the room you know you've, you you get your uninjured out of the pile and and moved off to the way you know one wall whatever and then for those that remain that are injured um, you give them a verbal command to move to a specific location. And the ones that are able to follow those instructions are greens. They're the walking right. wounded. Uh, and the others are red. And basically, you, you point a, if they're hurt, you point a gun at them and tell them to move, and they don't get them to move, that's a, that's a red. Um, and, we, and we put them into those two buckets. Now, um, Jill, for a second, I'm going to uh, tangent to the science behind that, if you will. Yes, it's stripped down, and it's a very, very basic way to split the seas, if you will, right. of, of, of people. Um, but when you're bleeding, mm -hmm. 
the first sign of shock is changes to levels of consciousness mm -hmm. and is generally going to be demonstrated through confusion, uh, failure to follow commands, things like that. And so we're not just testing for whether they can walk or whether they can move, but what is their mental state? You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there, what Ron just explained, there was a lot to that. Just that simple act of asking someone that is wounded or, or not wounded you know, to follow a simple command. The fact that they have, were able to hear you, comprehend what it is you wanted them to do, and, and a very key component of what Ron said that is maybe looked over is when you ask them to move to a specific place. So there's some comprehension there as well. So you can those of us in the medical side we've checked several boxes with that one simple act you know and we talk about triage triage is not just a one and done thing you know we've you're continually the triage is both a you know it's a verb like we're to triage a patient is to to have them you know to assess their level of um both comprehension their mentation as well as their physical condition and in the situation that we're going to use triage uh, the most, we're looking for those identify quickly identifying those life-threatening injuries. And just that one simple act, everyone that didn't move, wasn't able to move, couldn't move, then now we have uh, those are where we're, we're going to focus our attention on. Uh, yeah. The other thing to add to that is while we're doing that, it seems like a simple task, but we're also assessing them to try to determine if they, in fact, are a threat to us also. So it's not just we're telling people to do things. We're also having to figure out who could be a threat, who may not be a threat. So it, it's a bunch of things going on in a simplified fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that before we leave this or in, and go into it a little bit deeper, uh, I want to make really clear is that one of the um, uh, common misunderstandings that we see within law enforcement who, um, you know, who try to implement the red green is they don't distinguish between the uninjured and injured. Right. And they'll sometimes, you know, okay, we've got 14 greens. Well, you know, 12 of those greens are uninjured. You have actually two greens. Um, <laughs> the the uninjured don't get included in this triage count. That's just for just for the injured. So now, and I think we've set the stage to talk a little bit more about the meat of this. So that's that's a simple system f that we recommend law enforcement use. It requires very little training. It's very simple to understand. Jill, as you said, it mm -hmm. checks off a bunch of boxes. So let's talk a little bit about start triage and some of the other triage systems because, interestingly, they have some of the same gaps. Yeah, sure. I mean, and I think you're going to find that with most triage systems, and and the fact that that we're utilizing those triage systems, that it's it's humans, it's the, you know the, our first responders that that we're going to, oftentimes we'll find ourselves given whatever situation we're in, focusing just laser focused on something, the things that we can do and we can fix, and so we'll focus on. Um, categorizing those those injured and those wounded in trying to get so specific with categorizing them that we're forgetting the one thing that we're the reason that you triage the so what of triage like why are we even triaging patients because we know that certain injuries kill people fast you know bleed those those injuries that we know and especially in an active shooter incident why do we triage why are we triaging anyway and so that's what the focus for me is identifying the system that you use, if I'm 
focused on counting respirations. I'm counting, you know, your pulse. I'm I'm trying to ask you six or seven questions to tell if you, you know, how what the state of your men, your mental state of status is. I may I may skip the one thing I could do for you that's going to combat that clock that's just ticking, tick, tick, ticking, um, and could take your life. Yeah, you know it's interesting the way you just said that. Why are we triaging anyways? And I and I think it's important. You know, mm-hmm. we we talked about this in an earlier podcast. You know, if it's not a mass casualty incident, treat it as one. The yeah. the basis for triaging is when you're overloaded with casualties. Right. Now, if you're one person. Three people, where do you start? <laughs> you need to triage them. Yeah. Um, but if there's two or three people injured and there's two or three of you, um, is there really a need to triage or do you just go into your bath assessment or whatever assessment process right. you use and do and do a detailed one? It's um, it's an interesting question. Yeah, and you know, Bill, we often get confused with like triage and assessment. You know, oh, like yeah. getting those um, that terminology down and what is it that we're doing and you know what is it that and why are we doing it yeah and again we have to look at if i've got three red patients which is the worst red out of the three which is the transportation priority as as we look at these situations and understanding that this one is worse than the other two although they're both you know all three in critical conditions which one do we have to take first to save a life you know, and Ron, that's exactly where I was. I was leading this is to is to get into that. And um, before we go down that road, I want to uh, make sure that we're we're clear. The bulk of these rapid triage systems start being one of them. Salt, another one. Um, down the list you go. These systems are designed for broadly separating uh, people into these categories, and they take large swaths. Mm-hmm. Of, of things. For example, start. Um, the only way you can be green is to elect to be green. You know, get up and move. Right. Okay. Uh, well, my back really hurts and, you know, I'm just going to sit here and I've just made sure that I'm going to at least be a yellow within mm-hmm. the start system. Uh, and and all of them are like that. So the very one that we try to teach law enforcement, that they're either red or green. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one that FDNY uses that's very similar, interestingly. Start, salt, a lot of the others. Mm-hmm. It's a quick pass. Put them in broad categories. Um, mm-hmm. And in, in nearly all cases, those quick passes have very little basis in science. Some of them have a little more science than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of them have any validation studies behind them. And once you've put them in these buckets, okay, great. We've got 12 injured. Um, there is, uh, you know, four green and eight red, to your point, Rod. Now what do we do? Now what? That's it. And it's resource dependent, mm-hmm. to Ron's point. Right. You know, how many transport units, how many ambulances do we have? You know, what do we have on site that can uh, assist this, this uh, wounded person? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit from the EMT and paramedic perspective, uh, you do not have to be a paramedic to do an, you know, an assessment and figure out how critical somebody is injured. Um, so let's say you're the rescue task force that rolls into the casualty collection point, and it's already been sorted by the law enforcement officers. You know, they've got the uninjured out of the way. They've got the greens you know, over on the left side of the room, and you know, the reds are where they lay uh, in the floor. And so, okay, we're going to start with the reds. And now what, Joe? What yeah. What do we do? 
So you start where you are. You just you look at this patient, and and what we're looking for again are those life threatening injuries, and we're going to fix. If you find it, you fix it, and rapidly. It's a fix and find system. It should be, because again, why are we we doing this? Because we're trying to stop the greatest uh, damage to this person and try to save a life because we're combating that clock and typically with this with the active shooter incidents we're looking at penetrating injuries so we're looking at a loss of blood and 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 as that is the most preventable death that that we have there or situation we have in an active shooter incident the one thing that we can help prevent is stopping that bleeding so if we can assess that rapidly then we're going to do the greatest good you know um it's interesting. I when I went through med school, I remember mm-hmm. you know going through the head to toe trauma assessment. You right. know, back days of BTLS, PHTLS, <laughs> the head to toe trauma assessment, and it was uh, when we started doing this. Uh, you know, over a decade ago, um, we started learning some things from some of the military guys about mm-hmm. you know how they prioritize, like you were saying, some mm-hmm. things differently. You know, they don't look at airway first. They look at bleeding first. Right. You know, then they look at airway, then tensio, mm-hmm. uh, tension pneumo, and then, uh, you know, trying to correct from hypothermia. And when you understand the why behind that, it really starts to make a little sense. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, even with the American Heart Association, it's it's about getting that blood pumping. And, and um, even in a cardiac incident, when we're talking non-trauma, that we've de- the science has proven that it's getting that blood pumping. We pump hard and fast now. You know, it's not spending lo- uh, the amount of time that we spent when we first became ma- paramedics, all three of us. It's spending time getting that circulation. We'll translate that over to a trauma situation, such as an active shooter. Blood needs to be circulating. Sure. Well, blood doesn't circulate when it's on the floor. If it's not in the vessels, it's not circulating. So that's why bleeding is the is like the number is the number one priority for us in this in our scenarios. Yeah, and I, I think that's I think that's part of it. Um, you know, and, and whether you use that that military style uh, assessment bath assessment, mm-hmm. which you know we probably ought to do a whole podcast just on I on agree. talking about talking about that a little bit. But whether you use that assessment or something yeah. else, we want to focus on. Um, knocking out the things that are the most life-threatening at that moment uh, and again tuned for traumatic events you know it's not like we're walking in there expecting to find somebody's had a heart attack I mean it certainly that's possible but that's not what's going on Uh, traumatic events so and find it and fix it like you said quickly Mm -hmm. control major bleeding Uh, and with a distinction between major bleeding and you know minor bleeding Mm -hmm. Um, and then take a look at the hairway figure out if you've got any chest involvement mm-hmm. and deal with the tension pneumo so whether you use that system or something else uh, have a system to use but at the end of the day and i'm going to pose this to both of you at the end of the day you've got eight red patients in there mm-hmm. and they're red you got some that have been shot in the head some that have been shot in the chest some that have been shot in the belly um, some of them have um, you know, leg wounds, groin injuries, things like that. How do you, as a as a medic, how do you use medical judgment to say this one needs to go first? You, who who wants to st- start on that? Go ahead, Joe. 
Okay, <laughs> I'm the nurse in the room. Two, amp, <laughs> nurse in two amps of bicarb, one amp of Oh, now you might now you All might right, be dating yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so, so for me, honestly, it's it's taking that patient assessment. If we're using that bath assessment, and when I'm when you identify the patient, we know how much what. Uh, a certain amount given the person's size and of blood loss what it will do to that person if you have someone with a greater blood loss from like neck to navel that's the the area of our the core you know the core of our being if we have a massive blood loss there or a massive blood loss maybe in an extremity then we're going to identify the person who has the the fastest trip to uh, zero vital signs and for assessing those patients that the first person you come to we're, we're we've this is an, a communication that we've got to have when we get to that ambulance exchange point when we get to actually putting a body in an ambulance is identifying what we're dealing with looking at that total assessment looking at what this person has as far as we know how much blood you know we've all got about 10 units of blood and that circulates around and how much blood loss we have what is the impact to this airway do has there been a penetrating wound to the chest that air gets sucked into that chest and air should not be inside the chest if it's not in, in that's not inside the lungs so it will cause um a rapid deterioration of a patient so knowing those symptoms are those injuries that can cause that rapid deterioration you have to identify which patients and do i think I'm, we're going to get it right every time probably not you know there may be a patient that we've loaded that might not have been um, had the injuries or maybe the comorbidities that there's things we just will not know on on a lot of these scenes but for us just having that simplified assessment that's going to tell us the t- the potential deterioration of a patient is key. And the things that we learn throughout, tragically throughout oh. our times at war, we've improved every time on how we treat people. And I tell you, you know, a shooting victim in Mogadishu is no different than a shooting victim in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, they, they have the same type of wounds. We need to treat them the same. We've done well at trying to improve how we assess them and how we triage them and how we transport them and how we prioritize them we've come to the realization that some of these patients will not survive unless they see bright lights and cold steel which we can't do in the field but we've learned Mm -hmm. to better assess them and realize that look this one's got to go now this is right now right now situation this one we can wait or if we prioritize this one are we going to lose three others on this side so we've had to learn through our experiences both in the battlefield and on the streets of the United States that, you know, we have to treat things different. I think as professions, we've done a good job at advancing our skills through the learned experiences. Mm-hmm. There's things we'll be able to do in the field. You brought up a good point, Ron, that if when it gets to where I can't stop this bleeding any longer, I've done everything I can, and they need that surgical center you were talking about. That, that cold steel is what's going to save most of the um, patients that are injured through an active shooter or some penetrating wound. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right on target. And for me, um, uh, I think about it, and I don't know whether the right way to say this is pragmatic or not, um, but let me take them in three com- three compartments. Mm-hmm. Shot in the head, shot in the chest, shot in the abdomen. Mm. Um, you shot in the head. If it didn't kill you, 
um, then it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, head wounds tend to bleed very badly, depending on the entry and potential exit point of the head wound. You could have some bleeding into the airway and some airway compromise. There's not a whole lot you can do. You can't really control that. You can't stop it. Uh, and if you did, you would be creating a pressure problem on the brain anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your best opportunity for them is to get them up on their side and let them try to, to drain out. In other words, if the head wound is not instantly fatal, there's not a whole lot that we can really do to make that a whole lot better. So to me, a head wound is going to come after uh, somebody shot in the thorax, Agreed. in the thoracic cavity. So the the chest, to me, uh, is an area of particular concern. You mentioned the lungs uh, and the opportunity for tension pneumo or just oh, yeah. a hemo-pneumo, um, uh, you know, um, getting both blood and air into the chest cavity, which can cause us problems. You've got the heart there, your large vessels, you know, your aorta, um, and uh, your other vessels that are right up in the chest. That's a really bad area to get shot, number one. Number two, it's one of those areas where, as you said, Jill, there's not a whole lot we can do. Mm-hmm. You know, we can do a decompression if we think it's a tension pneumo, mm-hmm. and if you assess it correctly mm-hmm. and you diagnose the correct side to actually decompress it. I think we could do a whole podcast about tension oh, we pneumo. So, you know, great there, but the bleeding that's going on inside, if you've hit a major vessel, if it's hit the heart or part of the heart, again, if it's if it's ripped them apart, they're going to be done so quickly that they're probably already fatalities by the time we get to them. Um, but to me, that shot in the thorax is probably my number one priority. Uh, as we go down to the abdomen, yes, a lot of organs, a lot of things that can go wrong. However, the abdomen, we can do some bleeding control. You can do some pressure in most cases, uh, depending on where it is and what's been hit. Now, of course, you've still got your aorta coming right down the center. And so if you hit that, again, not not a whole lot coming back from that. Uh, But the bulk of the injuries in the abdomen would, uh, I think, be a, a lower priority than somebody shot in the chest. Now, here's my question. Uh, with that as the background, where would you prioritize the head wound versus an abdomen? So um, somebody shot in the head, somebody shot in the abdomen. Which one would you be inclined to push first? Well, I'll tell you, um, I'm going to answer that not by by not straight answering it, but kind of straight answering it. <laughs> Is that we used to yeah, you have a terminology in, in, the, in the trauma center of our, that we'd have people that were going to be fatal fast, like this is a fatal fast coming in. We got, you know, there, then, and typically it was the chest, the chest, because our, our thoracic cavity is, is designed like a well built, um, cabinet. Everything has a place. Oh yeah. Everything is in its place. And if something else comes in its place, there's, you know, that's where it wreaks havoc. And we, that's with your respiratory center and your circulation, which we know are, extremely important and so those that area will kill you fast then we have those that'll fatal later so those are a little later they can be fatal but it's usually later we've got some time so with those abdomens they need to be in surgery fast they because we've got to figure out what you know especially when we start looking at our guts and and they having a penetrating wound there the chance of infection so you want to address those super soon that then that just requires a general surgeon opening them up 
So now we're getting, it's kind of technical or getting on that second, third order of for medical decisions. But that head wound, that's going to demand specialized surgeons at, mm. and a specialized. So for me, I will go ahead and answer your question. I'm going probably abdomen next because I know I can, I have a, they're, they're my next priority at surger, surgical center. And you did um, hit it on the head. <laughs> pun intended on the um <laughs> for the wound to the brain is is that they're either going to die right then and there or we've got some time and that's when we're going to monitor this patient we're i mean continually monitoring giving resource to and everything we say is, is definitely dependent, yeah. dependent on what you have on scene but uh, as far as prioritizing patients while there is a general category we can put patients in or the injured in it's not quite that simple always because i can always come up with a but what if the you know know, so i I have the what ifs yes but in general terms we're thinking and for me if i if you want to come up with some simple um codifier that will tell you how i should triage a patient or how and when i'm doing my assessments how do we triage you know sort them using triage for the word sort is Use the clock again. And it's like my one of the things I always go back to. What am I how am I going to be able to positively impact this person the best? Who can I have the most success positively for by transporting them ahead of the others? And again, that time isn't we don't anticipate that time being an extended period of time. No. We anticipate a few minutes. Being, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. It's an instant. It's you know. it's they're the next one out the door, right. or they're the one out the door in three minutes or four yeah. minutes. Right. Ron, what about you? Head head versus abdomen. Gunshot wound to the head. Gunshot wound to the abdomen. Um, which one are you going to go with? Generally speaking, generally speaking, which one and why? I, I, as I watch, not only my past life but my present life, um, even a lot of head injuries, they won't go in and do surgery immediately. They want to let some of the Swellings, and I'm not a doctor. I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night or anything. But you know, they tend to handle it in more methodical fashion. And I'm not saying that patients that come in don't immediately go to surgery because a lot of times they do. But there are times when they just kind of wait a little bit. And even the abdominal wounds, they tend to take them right up and open them up so they can see the degree of injury. And you know, okay, his spleen's blown up. You know, we've got to address it right now. And yeah. So I, I would do the same thing Jill said. Oh, yeah. Good answer, Ron. <laughs> but, but, hey, Bill, to your point, though, in all seriousness, a head injury? Are you kidding me? You're not going to take someone that's shot in the head first? I mean, I, I, you know, it sounds like you should, but, but that's where it demands. And, 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 unfortunately, we've all just been there and done that and seen the, the after effects of, of appropriately is a strong word, but, but triaging in a, a sensible scientifically based fashion medically based and i'm going to use that as an opportunity to trend it's a tangent to the next part of this trappings of triage Mm -hmm. what you just said are you going to take well that that isn't even the controversial part of this Mm -hmm. uh how many people have you heard say well we're going to transport all the reds and the greens can wait oh yeah yeah i mean really okay how's that you know let's see how that's going to work so here's the here's the inherent problem um, if well, there's a couple of them, number one, if you take all the reds to one hospital, mm. 
you've overloaded that hospital and probably left them with a challenge. Now, they might rise to the challenge, and they may still manage to, to save every savable life, depending on their system and their status. But that's not really what we are supposed to do as EMS. What we should be doing is spreading out those numbers to the available hospitals. So if there's two, three hospitals around your scene, you're spreading them out. But it's not just spreading out the numbers, it's also spreading out the severity. And in the back of an ambulance, there are some exceptions, but most ambulances are running with an EMT and a paramedic. And the EMT is usually having a drive, and so the paramedic is in the back by themselves, or if they happen to be lucky, maybe they've got one extra person riding with them. But they only have the equipment and the hands to deal with one critical patient, one red. Right. And so when we start talking about, you know, we've got some chest wounds, we've got abdominal wounds, we've got head wounds, and I'm going to send this chest wound with this yellow uh, that's been, you know, shot in the leg, got a groin or a truncal injury that's, you know, we can't really quite control bleeding, but they're not – you know, they're doing okay. They're yellow. So I'm going to mm-hmm. move them out. And then I'm going to grab one of the green walking wounded. And I'm going to load that ambulance with a red and a yellow and a green. And people just want to lose their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you stop and think about the best interest of the patient, um, there's a limit to how much the medic can do. There's a limit to the amount of equipment they have. And oh, by the way, if you send all your reds to one hospital, you overload them, you need to distribute that out. And then and then I, I, I want you guys to pick it up here, but I want to tell this one story, anecdotal that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, an active shooter event that occurred uh, up in the northwest part of the country. And there was a young lady that had been shot, walking wounded. And the, um, uh, the paramedic that was coming in Uh, said, well, you know, what about her? And the person that was with him said, no, 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 walking wounded, walking wounded, that she's green, walking wounded. And um, for whatever reason, this paramedic looked at her and didn't like what they saw or wanted to check her. And it turned out that she'd been shot in the back of the shoulder, except unbeknownst to everybody, that bullet had done some bouncing around. And while she was green and walking at that moment, the paramedic realized that she'd basically been shot in the chest and began to prioritize her and got her out on one of the first ambulances. Um, she ended up coding in the ambulance, but survived. You got to wonder, hmm. what would happen if that young paramedic, this was a young paramedic, what would happen if that young paramedic had just ignored her because she was a, she was a green, right. you know, she was quote unquote a green, she can wait. Um, and that, I, I think, is the scariest part of the trappings of triage is this fallacy that the greens can wait, things like that. So with that, let's dive into a little bit of, of how you're loading your ambulances, the mixes of the yellows and the greens, how you can have somebody that's very severely injured be a green for a little while. Um, and let's pick that up from there. And we're talking about efficient transportation. It you know if you're going to transport each red patient by themselves, how many ambulances do you have in your community? You know if you've got unlimited resources, then you might be able to do that. But most areas don't. So can you transport that red while you're putting the yellow right there next to him so someone can keep an eye on him, and then the greens up front so as the driver's going, he's paying attention. Again, trying to do it as efficiently. This isn't a normal 
situation that we handle on a daily basis. These are, you know, the obscure type situation we respond to. So we don't handle them the same way we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And we've got to get the most people to treatment as quickly as we can, and that tends to be the most efficient way to do it. Yeah, you hit on something that I want to, hopefully I'll remember to say later on, this is not a usual, you know, we all, uh, response, we all operated under guidelines, our standard operating guidelines. And guidelines are meant to give to give us, you know, law enforcement, medic, and, and to give us guidance on how this is not a normal situation. So you're going to have to look at your resources. And I'm going to try to unpack. There was a lot to, that I wanted to unpack of your, the story you brought up. The first being the just simple oversimplifying. And sometimes, you know, we want to keep this, this triaging the green patients, the walking wounded, if you will. They have to be, just because they're put as walking wounded, it immediately when resources, if there's just a few, and, and many places across uh, the country are very scarce in resources. So uh, it may be two medics, you know, doing the, a lot of the, the triaging and, and the, of the patients. But other folks, which is why it's so important, is the first thing I wanted to unpack, it's so important that we bring in our both our fire uh, components and our law enforcement to assist with that. Just walk, if you, if I can just have somebody over, if I have six greens while I'm addressing the four or five reds, just talk to them. Just go talk, see where, look and see if anyone has any wounds. Like just find out what the wound, I, you know, I may not even need you to do anything to that, but just at least do some follow on assessment by soliciting and not just while you know having the other folks that have cleared the area out high-fiving and signing autographs you know there's still you know life to be you know life-saving that needs to go on even with the walking wounded addressing how we um, stack or term but how we put patients in the ambulance you know that's a huge topic um, depending on what resources you have and not just resources on people but on that rig whatever your ambulance however it's outfit and how close what how long of a drive do you have to your hospital we've taught in some areas where their nearest facility is 20 miles away and and plus you know there's some some truth you know there um additions to that how much treatment can you do in the back of that truck what do you have on you with because we know the physiology of the injuries what's going to happen to the body with a penetrating injury so you have to be smart but getting them to treatment is still the priority but getting them to treatment in a an efficient and effective manner right. is just as important they got to be there effectively and the last thing i wanted to unwrap was hospitals you know how we we tend to you know just get them off scene get them off scene you know we got to break the record like we're at a, you know a pit crew or something but transporting a large number of of our categorized red patients, those with the severe life-threatening injuries, give, sending them all to just the closest hospital, we may not be doing the best for that for that patient. And the one um, thing that we we talk about in many of our or one aspect that we talk about in many of our podcasts is the importance of dispatch, utilizing dispatch for our triage, bringing them into that, having getting making sure that we know that the hot that what our hospitals are capable of at that moment 
what their capacity is and their capability, you know, t- capabilities are. You're and talking having, about like bed counts? Yeah, yeah, Capacity yeah. counts, how many yeah. reds, yellows, and greens How many take? can you handle? Yeah, how much, uh, you know, how many surgeons do you have on site? Because let's just be honest, uh, the penetrating wounds, they, they're going to need surgeons. So we're looking at how many surgeons are available. You know, and that's when you call a hospital and they say, oh, we can take two reds, three greens. That's what they mean by that. This is at this point moment. Now, might they have to take more because, you know, people drive up? Yeah, sure. sure. And that's the one thing we don't know in the field is there's a lot of walking wounded that have happened in many of the um, active shooter incidents that we study um, on a routine basis that a lot of the hospitals are getting those self-transports. So it's really important is when we're delineating which patient goes to which hospital that we incorporate our dispatch so that we have a solid answer and, and we're doing the best for the patient. That makes- I think what Jill said initially was something that we can't just mull over is talking to the patients. How many times have we seen where a patient says, I, t- I tweak my back some? And that's all they think. They don't realize that they have, in fact, been shot. Yep. Yeah. You know, it happens to law enforcement, trained professionals, soldiers. Yeah. Man, you're shot. No, no. Yeah. Yes, you are. They don't realize because they're, you know, epinephrine's going through the roof and. <laughs> You know, everything's in their body has gone into survival mode, so they don't realize it. And I think that's key is make sure we talk to everybody. And, again, we're taking care of the reds, but we're not negating the greens and the yellows or anything else. I I think what you just said, Ron, bears um, underlining and an emphasis point on them, and that is talking to everybody. I And I... I can't understand. I can't under um, or overemphasize this enough. I guess I should say, and it's so simple. But the first sign of shock is going to be an altered level of consciousness, which right. is almost always some implement uh, some instance of confusion. And the the most common thing is they start asking you the same question over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know what what happened. Uh, well, you know, this, this, and this. Um, and then 30 seconds later, a minute later, well, you know, what happened? Or some variation on theme of, sure. you know, I don't, I just don't understand what happened. And when you realize that, you know, a person you're communicating with is getting into that uh, level of consciousness where they are confused, they're not clear you've answered their question and they didn't comprehend it and now they're asking the question again that is um you know a red flag mm-hmm. like showing up for a date and the father's sitting on the porch with the shotgun this is an attention getting red flag <laughs> that <clears throat> that needs to that, that you need to pay attention to and <clears throat> i have people sometimes that say i, I can't believe you're going to put a green and your answer is that the that whoever's driving the ambulance should just talk to them. Well, yeah, because we're assessing level of consciousness. That's going to tell us when when things have have gone horribly wrong. And I don't really know whether this young paramedic with this girl, you know, whether in the conversation he picked up on something and said, "No, wait a minute. I you know, she's she's going through asking the same questions over and over again. I, I don't really know, but he saved her life." He sure, sure. did. Yeah. I hope he was in one of my paramedic classes back in the day at the academy because <laughs> I, we teach young medics, be be uh, aware and be cautious of the person that's fine, 
that tells you, oh, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And you see, you know, you you can see the mechanism of injuries or you see what's happened. And the person that's fine, because denial is another big, uh, big thing that you see people, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, because, you know, the the tension is up. You don't want to believe it's happening. You think it's your back twinge. Yeah, so be cautious of of those as well. Or the the buddy that you know, no, my buddy's worse. Take my buddy first. Right. You know, you're holding your arm because you've yeah. been shot in the chest. Right. And your your arm hurts when you move it. When you hold it, you're fine. Yeah. yeah you had a bullet go in your chest. That you're you're a priority. No, no, no I'm fine. My my buddy. Take <laughs> right. care of my buddy first. Yeah. I I just can't overemphasize that enough. You do not need to be medically trained right. to recognize when somebody starts to get confused. Sure. You do need to know that that means they're going into shock. Now, the caveat to that is they could also be in cognitive overload. They they could also just their brain can't process it and they're shutting down. And that can happen. But don't assume that. Yeah. Assume it's uh, a medical cause until proven otherwise right. Is, right. is what I would say. So what else on trappings of triage do you think we – need to hit on for the greater good i mean it it i from my perspective it almost doesn't matter what system you're using use a system but just know that that ain't going to get it done because at some point you're going to end up with eight or nine reds and who's going to go next and now you're into medical judgment so if you haven't had taught your people how to do medical judgment you need to kind of get on that but what else what else is there that it it jumps out at you i have uh one thing for triage that that I try to focus on for myself and, and and all of the responders I work with is triage is not a one and done thing. Triage is is a continual evaluation, a, tenu- a continual patient assessment and evaluation because the condition is a, a continuum. So it's not once someone is is been tagged or, or marked a certain level or acuity if they're yellow, red, or green, that that means right now they are. That making sure we continue that because oftentimes another trapping is uh, medics. We tend to over, or uh, uh, well, some some medics tend to. I'll say some over triage. Oh, everybody's red. If I just get get them all off because if they're not here, I don't have to. You know, like let's just get them to the hospital fast. You know, treat them with diesel. So we're um, over triaging and under triaging of like oh you're fine you're walking you know we talked about that in a sense with our walking wounded the under triage but there's also an over triage as well that making sure that that we're cognizant on whatever system we're using we know that we're we know what our enemy is it's the clock so how can we best get this person with whatever their injury wherever it is we know knowing the physiology of uh, of the human anatomy and what a penetrating wound will do to to that portion of the human anatomy should guide you into who needs to go next or who can safely go in you know if your resources are scarce and we do need to send two you know uh, wounded in one ambulance or or put a the walking wounded that really does just have a scrape from running you know away but the, putting them in that front seat so they can be evaluated or you know so those decisions are made very case dependent but it's a continual decision making process and I, I go back to you know we assume because we tell people they're going to triage that they understand that it's the function of triaging the patients that you want them to do. If you got cognitive overload and you tell them, hey, I want you to go triage, are they going to triage or are they going to the position of triage? 
we've got to make sure they understand clearly what their responsibilities yeah. are and we're not but we do see that sometimes in certain situations people handle the stress differently and we've got to make sure that you know they understand that they're triaging the patients you know because we, again we go back to the terms we talked about before we use the same term for several things and do they understand what the responsibility is so it's, it's something i've seen both in the fire service where i've had senior lieutenants pull up on a big fire and lock up completely and it's just that cognitive overload that we've got to make sure that we clear concise communication with confirmation and if we do that then our chance of success is far better i think the last thing that i'd like to talk about as we wrap up on this one and I don't have any scientific evidence for this, just mm-hmm. anecdotal observation. Um, of course, Jill, you're much younger than uh, Otter, mm-hmm. Otter and I. Much. Yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> but back in the day when Otter and I were working ambulances, um, we were the only medic within three or four ambulances around. Right. And it was commonplace, especially with multi-vehicle collisions and things like that, to need to go into a mass casualty mode and to triage patients. I would say rarely would a week go by that you didn't have to manage multiple patients. Sure. Um, and so by necessity, whether we were good at it or not, we had to do it and we had to use it. And so if you weren't good at it when you got started, you kind of figured it out underway. Today, it seems to be a very different environment. Um, there are in most communities a plentiful number of medics Mm -hmm. and when we're faced with more than one patient we call an equal number of rigs Mm -hmm. and every medic gets their own patient and they don't actually have to do multi-patient management and it seems that we've lost some of the art if you will of actually managing mass casualty incidents we've lost some of that skill set because of how the environment has changed and i'm i'm not seeing signs from the and it's not everybody but the majority of people that are on the streets i'm not seeing signs that that mass casualty incident module that they went through for two hours in school really sunk in and that they've got good grasp of it uh but like I said, I don't have scientific evidence for that. It's just been uh, my personal observations that we've we've got a disconnect, and we have a a generation of EMTs and paramedics that haven't needed to manage mass casualties on a regular basis. And when you don't do something frequently, you tend to lose the skill set at that. And I'm not sure that training has picked up on that and prioritized it. Uh, and I'm curious whether the two of you see it differently see it the same or don't see it at all what what's your thoughts that's an interesting take and i can see that and not just in the fact that in a many departments especially major metropolitan departments um we find that everyone's a medic just about you know we have there's a lot it's a lot of medics and in, in a lot of our area communities and for those communities that it could 
truly be a detriment because when we're triaging whose patient is in most need well it's going to be my patient you know my pa- you know so it's the one i'm triaging. so there's there there hasn't been a need for you to have to walk away from this patient to go to the next you know injured you know and and there's a lot to walking away from one injured to go to another injured you know and uh so it's an interesting take on that but i think the amount of if you take it to a post um you know the ems post-emergency medicine into the hospital we are finding a lot of urgent care you know like uh locations where we can take patients where they can get some secondary um care that that like a tertiary care before needing the surgeon so we are have almost saturated the the field to where it's in for a patient outcome it could be very positive, but it's it's a situation that that is definitely warrants a, a nice deep dive on as to, to how we adjust our training for medics. How do we adjust, you know, the sorting of those patients and and maybe utilizing all of those resources, both pre-hospital and the paramedics and utilizing the our hospital facilities that are maybe an ancillary standalone emergency room. You know, so that's a an interesting um, take because I'm not quite as young as as I like for you guys to portray that I am. But and please continue. <laughs> but I do remember, you know, like the the mass casualty training we had of of old is probably needs to stay there. I guess things have definitely changed. I think the fact is that if we ever get to the point where we feel we can't improve, we failed. Yeah. And it's we should always be reflecting on everything we do. And that's one of the areas that maybe it's time to circle back and reflect on that and see what we're doing, see what we're teaching. And, you know, it's up to the people now. I'm not teaching anyone in the medical field anymore, but there are people that are and there are people that are very capable. So they're the ones that need to assess and see how they can improve. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd also be curious, you know, for our listeners out there for – you know the the, uh, the folks that are training officers. Are you are you seeing this as a as an issue? Is um, is mass casualty training uh, for your for your EMS folks? Um, you know whether that's fire based EMS or whatever. Uh, are you seeing that as something that's worthy of spending time on? Because there's some gaps or not, uh, you know, we'd we'd love to always love to hear the listener questions and, and doing that. Well, we are uh, out of time on this one. Thank you both for coming Thank in you. to talk about it. It was, a, it was a fun conversation. The trappings of of triage. Ron, thanks for being here. Yes, Jill, thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to thank our producer, Carla Torres, uh, as always, doing a great job behind the scenes. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do subscribe and share it. Let your friends know about it. The more people that we can reach, the, the better chance we have of helping to uh, save some lives and encourage uh, better outcomes for these things. And until next time, stay safe.